Well, that song's a powerful prayer, isn't it? I hope you were able to mean every word uh, that you just uh, prayed as you were singing that to the Lord. Well, take your Bibles and turn back to the book of Romans, Romans chapter 15. And uh, we have come to the final section of Paul's letters, letter to the, the churches in Rome. And Paul devoted the majority of this, what's referred to as his magnum opus, to explaining the doctrine of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That was chapters 1 through 11. And then we've been studying the last three and a half chapters, which he devoted to applying these truths to our everyday lives as, as Christians. And uh, here in the first uh, 13 verses of chapter 15, he actually gave two benedictions, which made it sound like he was about to, to wrap things up. Verse 5, now may the God who gives perseverance and encouragement grant you to be of the same mind with one another according to Christ Jesus, <clears throat> excuse me, so that with one accord you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. <clears throat> that sounds like one of his classic endings, right, to a letter, but he goes on, and then in verse 13, now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that you will abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Again, a very familiar uh, benediction, very common to Paul's writings. In fact, you uh, would have thought, I mean, he could have put a period there at the end of that uh, verse 13 and be done, but he's not quite done yet. And uh, he has another chapter and a half left. And what remains here are some concluding remarks in which he explains the reason why he wrote this letter to begin with. Uh, he shares his, uh, shared his personal plans to visit them along with some prayer requests. And then he extended some personal greetings to his friends. And he gave a final warning and a closing doxology. And I'm sure if you're familiar with Paul's letters, this is pretty typical of, of, of his, uh, the way he wrapped up a letter. All of his letters have some concluding remarks like this. But he dedicated more space to these concluding remarks uh, in this letter to the Romans than in any other epistle. And perhaps it was because he had never visited Rome. Uh, he had never interacted with the churches or the believers there, and so he wanted to make a more personal connection with them. And perhaps it was because he had just got done calling them out about their lack of love and, and grace that they were showing towards one another when it came to exercising their, their Christian liberty in the gray areas. And so uh, there was a, an, an apparent attention between the Jewish Christians and the Gentiles Christians, and he just called it like it was and uh, told them to, to stop being selfish and, and to love one another. And so... He, I think he wanted to commend them here, not just uh, rebuke them. He wanted to point out evidences of God's grace in their lives. And so he began this closing section by offering a brief word of commendation in verse 14. Paul wrote here, and concerning you, my brethren, I myself also am convinced that you yourselves are full of goodness filled with all knowledge and able also to admonish one another. If you're like me, there are certain verses or certain passages in God's word that every time you read them, they make you think of a particular person that you associate with that verse or those verses, or you think of a specific sermon that you heard preached on that verse or those verses, which you'll never forget, right? Or, or maybe it makes you think of a singular event or experience in your life that God used that verse or those verses to guide you and direct you or sustain you or to comfort you. Can you relate to what I'm saying about, talking about? I'm sure you, if you've studied God's word for any length of time, there's, there's those verses that we all have. Well, whenever I read 
Romans 15, 14, I always think of one man and one of the books that he wrote that has had a profound influence on my life and ministry. That man's name is Jay Adams, and the title of the book he wrote is Competent to Counsel. If I was to make a list of the top 10 books that have impacted my life most, uh, this would be easily in the top five. Um, Providentially, Jay Adams went to heaven last weekend, and he was uh, 91, and he is one of my heroes of the faith. I appreciate what the writer of Hebrews said in Hebrews chapter 13, Hebrews chapter 13, verse 7. He made this statement. There was a Hebrews 13 in my Bible at one point. Oh, there it is. Remember those who led you, who spoke the word of God to you, and considering the result of their conduct, imitate their faith. I think that verse is a biblical mandate for heroes, having heroes, spiritual heroes. Hope you have some. Uh, Jay Adams is one of mine, and for those of you who are not familiar with Jay Adams or, or this groundbreaking book, Competent to Counsel, he is the father and founder of the modern biblical counseling movement. He's even been described as the Martin Luther of biblical counseling because of how God used him to birth a much-needed reformation and how pastors and Christians in general viewed and practiced and participated in counseling. And the publication of this book in 1970, okay, dating myself now, um, was like Adam's 95 thesis being nailed to the door of the church that sparked the movement that is now in its third generation. And it's really an interesting story. I don't know if you like church history like I like church history, but I always like to, to learn about how things came to be and and uh, why they are the way they are and, and who were the, the, the key players in, in different movements. And so uh, just, just very simply and, and um, um, really uh, nothing flashy or um, unique about Jay Adams per se. He was just being a faithful guy. And uh, it really all started back in 1963 when as a new instructor, at Westminster Theological Seminary, which is located in Pennsylvania, Adams was assigned a course on pastoral counseling since none of the other professors wanted to teach it. And so the new got it, right? They, had to, they let the new guy take it. And so with only limited counseling experience himself, he ended up teaching that one-hour unit using the notes left behind by the previous instructor. But as one friend and, and co-laborer writes, quote, Adams found no theological substance in what he had been handed and determined to study and do better before he would have to teach the course again the next year. As he studied, however, he found nothing to help him. He poured over everything he could find written from a Christian perspective and found only Freudian and Rogerian dogma. Now, it's only some of us older people in the room, I'm putting myself in that category in this case, who, who understand uh, that, uh, th- that terminology, Freudian, Rogerian dogma. Because in those days, the theories and therapies uh, of, of Sigmund Freud and, and Carl Rogers and guys like B.F. Skinner and other secular psychologists that they were advocating in those days were based on atheistic, unbiblical views of man and sin. And while well-intentioned, they were seeking to solve people's problems with, while ignoring Christ and, and, and his word. And yet, instead of rejecting these psychological models of counseling, pastors back in the 70s, 60s and 70s, were adopting them. 
And they were attempting to integrate them with Scripture, which amounted to just simply sprinkling some Bible verses on top of these heretical ideas and methods. And even worse, some pastors felt ill-equipped and inadequate to address the problems that their, their members were struggling with, and so they were, they were referring their church members to the trained professionals or the specialists who were the psychologists or the psychiatrists. And so in Adam's mind, psychology had infiltrated the church and was undermining the role of the church, and psychologists were usurping the God-ordained responsibility of, of pastors to care for people's souls. In fact, the word psychology literally means the study of the soul. And according to the Puritans, counseling is soul work, and it is the duty of a pastor to be a curer of souls. And so the bottom line for Adams is that people's problems are not psychological, but theological. And he saw an appalling absence of theology in the counseling that was going on in the church in that day. And so his basic goal was to confront and correct the church and to call pastors and Christians back to the centrality of Christ and the sufficiency of Scripture in order for a person to experience true lasting change in their life. And so he emphasized verses like Psalm 19. You can turn there with me. Psalm 19, verses 7 through 11. One of the most beautiful, powerful, comprehensive descriptions of God's word, the sufficiency of scripture. Psalm 19, verse seven, the law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlighten the eyes, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true. They are righteous altogether. They are more desirable than gold, yes, sweeter than, uh, than much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned in keeping them. There is great reward." And so really that's a, the psalmist is giving a grocery list there of all the things that the word is and does. And there's not anything it's lacking. It's completely sufficient. Another one of J. Adam's favorite verses to remind the church of was 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. In other words, it, 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 it has the ability to do all sorts of things in our lives. So that, verse 17, the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. In other words, if you have a Bible and you can read it and study it, then guess what? You have everything you need, not only for your own spiritual life, but to help other people's spiritual walk. And so his point was simply that the Bible is inerrant, it's infallible, it's authoritative, it's sufficient, it's complete, and either we believe what it says about itself or we open ourselves up to all sorts of corrupt thinking. And all attempts to integrate psychology with Christianity are rooted in the idea that there's something inherently lacking in Christianity or in God's word, and it needs what psychology has to offer. But I would stand here and tell you that if a truth is necessary, it's already in the Bible. Psychology may prove helpful when it comes to observing and describing symptoms of a person's problems. In fact, that's how I think psychology has hooked so many Christians, and not just Christians, so many people in our world. Our, our, we're living in a psychologized world. And if, and if it was a problem back in 1970, I can't imagine 
what Jay Adams would say today, as he, if he stood here today and said, uh, or gave us his impressions of, of, of where psychology has grown, gone and grown over the last 40 years since he wrote this book. But what, what, what hooks us, what hooks people, uh, is that uh, they, they have these descriptions of these symptoms, these list of symptoms, and they say, hey, if you have these symptoms, then you have this. And you read these list of symptoms and it goes, wow, that describes me. One example would be uh, ADHD, attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. Uh, if you were to li- read a list of symptoms of ADHD, I guarantee you that every one of you would think you have ADHD. I read the list. It's in the DSM, uh, the psych- basically the psychologist Bible, the DSM diagnostic manual that they keep updating and adding more names of diseases that they've come up with. And, and you look up these things and you read the symptoms and go, wow, I like have every one of these things. Because they, they really have done a good job of observing people and their problems. And they, they, they say, yeah, these are some, this is what it looks like. This is what a person looks like who has this problem or what they would say condition or what? Disease. However, when they go to offer an interpretation of the problem or the reason, they want to offer the reason to why a person has that problem or they want to get to the root of the problem or they want to prescribe a solution to the problem, that's where they're not very helpful at all. The scriptures are the only manual we need for counseling. They don't need to be supplemented or integrated with anything else. And so Adam sought to restore confidence in the fact that God's word is sufficient to address every problem that we face in our lives. And we know that to be true because John 17, 17 says, right, sanctify, Jesus prayed, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth, right? So the word of God is the primary means by which we're sanctified, by which we change and grow that's really the, the goal of, of counseling, if you will, is to help a person change and grow. Well, it happens through the Word of God. But he was also saddened by the fact that Christ had just been ripped out of the whole process. And he's the very center of the process. For example, Colossians 1.18. Colossians 1.18 of course, this was a letter written primarily to, uh, to exalt the supremacy and the centrality and the sufficiency of Christ. There were some false teachers that had come to Colossae and were trying to convince the believers there that you know, they, they, there, was just, there was more than that they needed to know or experience beyond what they already had in Christ. And so Paul says things like, verse 18, Christ is the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. And then in verse 28, he says, we proclaim him, Christ, admonishing every man, teaching every man with all wisdom so that we may present every man complete in Christ. It was all about Christ. It was through Christ and it was toward Christ and it was for Christ. And then in chapter 2, verse 8, see to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. For in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form, and in him you have been made complete. In other words, you have everything you need in Jesus. Peter said it very well in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, he's talking about the grace and peace that we have in the knowledge of God through Jesus Christ, seeing that his divine power has granted us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him, Christ, who calls us by his own glory and excellence. 
In other words, we have everything we need for life and godliness through the knowledge of Christ, through knowing Christ. And so Jesus Christ is the center figure, central figure of counseling. And his sacrificial substitutionary death on the cross is the key to counseling. His death broke the power of sin and provides us with freedom from sin. So we no longer have to live as slaves to sin or, or sinful habit patterns that we've developed, right? When we were an unbeliever, now we can overcome every sinful habit pattern through Christ. So who Christ is and what Christ has done makes all that possible, makes change possible. And in Christ, we have all the resources we need to live a life that is pleasing to God. His spirit, he sent his spirit to live within us, to help us live out all the truths that he's given us in his word. It says in Isaiah 9, 6 that Jesus would be the wonderful counselor. He's not only the one who makes counseling possible, he's the goal of counseling. The ultimate goal of counseling is to be like what? Or who? To be like Jesus. It's, it's Christ's likeness. We, we've been learning about this in Romans, in Romans chapter 8, verse 28 and 29, for we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined, here it is, to be conformed to the image of his son. And then in Paul's own testimony in Philippians chapter three, verse 10, he talks about how he wanted to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering being conformed to his death in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I've already obtained it or have already become perfect, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which I also was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, yet one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching towards what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. So Jesus is who we're shooting for, right? We want to be like Jesus. That's why, we, that's why God saved us, was to make us like Jesus. And so based on these verses and, and many more, Adam's point was simply this. In order for counseling to be truly Christian, if you want to call it Christian counseling, it must be Christ-centered and Bible-based one of my favorite books, titles at least, is, is, is one, a, a book that was recently written uh, in the genre of biblical counseling, and it was called Christ-Centered Biblical Counseling. I mean, just that says it, very simply. What are we talking about here? We're talking about Christ-Centered Biblical Counseling. That was Jay Adams' passion. And so it, 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 it motivated him to write voluminously and, and lecture tirelessly in order to help pastors, particularly pastors, develop skill in practically applying the scriptures to the myriad of issues that people have to deal with in life. He wrote over 100 books. I mean, that's a lot of books. I've got one under my belt. There's no way I'm making 100, Okay. I've already run out of time to catch up. There's no way. Somebody introduced Jay Adams one time as the man who never had one unpublished thought. And it really was true. It seems like everything that one of that guy's mind or came out of his mouth ended up in a book somewhere. In fact, I have more books in my library by Jay Adams than any other author, with the exception of John MacArthur. Those are the two guys that have the most books, John MacArthur and Jay Adams. One of the books that he wrote is called A Consumer's Guide to Preaching. I've told you about this book. It was a kind of a goofy cover. Somebody gave it to me when I was a youth pastor back in California, and I thought, oh, this is kind of strange, A Consumer's Guide to Preaching. And it had somebody sitting in a pew uh, with a Bible on his lap and these huge ears, like cartoon ears. And you can imagine what this was all about, a consumer's guide to preaching. It was all about how to listen to a sermon, which sparked something in me years ago that turned into, right, expository listening. 
the book that we wrote together here as a church. And it all started with me reading that book, Consumer's Guide to Preaching by Jay Adams. It felt like his, that he had, he had stumbled on something profound and had been overlooked and somebody else needed to say something and try to get some attention to, to this uh, profound subject. He traveled extensively, lectured tirelessly. In fact, uh, even to the... Um, even to the point where he um, started having health problems and he had to slow down because he was so overworked. My first exposure to Jay Adams, believe it or not, was as a student at Word of Life Bible Institute in upper New York, New York State where we were given this book to read. This was an assigned text for our curriculum. So we read this book uh, and then he was, in, Jay Adams was invited to be a guest lecturer Ready for this? For the purpose of training and equipping us to be summer camp counselors. How many of you guys served as a camp counselor sometime in your Christian life, right? I mean, not, not a whole lot of preparation goes into that, just kind of showing up and, you know, kind of corralling kids and making sure they don't hurt themselves and, you know, have a little cabin time at night, you know, a little devo time at night and lead a discussion and... Um, Close in prayer and, you know, kind of be fun and energetic and hang out with kids. And, well, they bring Jay Adams in. Talk about the big guns, right? Bring Jay Adams in to teach us how to be camp counselors. And I, I, I still can see the auditorium, the pavilion where I was sitting and thinking to myself, this is profound. This is This is amazing. That this place that I, God blessed me to go to school at had such a high view of counseling, being a summer camp counselor, right? This responsibility we had to shepherd these students that were going to be coming on Word of Life Island uh, for a week or two in the summertime, that they brought in Jay Adams to teach us far more than we'd ever get around to doing with these students. But it really laid a foundation uh, in my life and lit a fire in my heart for biblical counseling. Jay Adams also founded a number of organizations and institutions and periodicals which have served to strengthen and develop the biblical counseling movement. You've heard of uh, probably CCEF, Christian Counseling and Education Foundation. Uh, He started that. And that mission, the mission of that organization was this, quote, to restore Christ to counseling and counseling to the church. To restore Christ to counseling and counseling to the church. He played a leading role in, crea- in creating NANC, the National Association of Neuthetic Counselors, which was a certification program. They decided to change the name recently. It's now called ACBC, not ACDC. Don't get that wrong. Uh, ACBC, Association of Certified Biblical Counselors. We have a number of our people who are uh, either certified through ACBC or uh, are in the process of being certified. And it's a rigorous uh, time of, of studying and reading and writing answers and then you have to have 50 hours of supervised counseling and, and they really want to make sure if they put their stamp of approval on you as a, as a certified biblical counselor that you, you know God's word and you know how to apply it accurately and, and, and practically to people's lives. He also established the Institute for Nathetic Studies kind of to, to, for his legacy to live on after his death, along with the Journal of Pastoral Practice, which is now known as the Journal of Biblical Counseling. Some of you may be familiar with that. has some excellent articles there. One of the most interesting books that uh, we as a staff, pastoral staff, recently read uh, was a book written by Heath Lambert. It was his doctrinal dissertation. It was called The Biblical Counseling Movement After Adam's. And uh, he very, because uh, if you know anything about the biblical counseling movement, it's like there was Jay Adams and then there was everybody else, right? Th- these guys like David Powelson and Ed Welch and Paul Tripp and Ted Tripp and um, Wayne Mack and, you know, you fill in the blanks, right? And, and there seemed to be, hey, what's the difference between Jay Adams and these, these other guys, this second generation of guys, uh, Seems like there's a different maybe emphasis, a different um, attitude, a, a different demeanor, 
uh, to how they go about counseling, and it seemed like there was this rift or this divide that had happened. Um, well, Heath Lambert does an outstanding job of saying, hey, listen, and the way he said it is, is Adam, quote, Adam's brought the force of a founder and the flaws that come with it. Like Martin Luther. We don't agree with everything Martin Luther did, do we? But we sure love and appreciate that guy, and we're sitting here today, standing here today at this church, standing on Martin Luther's shoulders. Flaws and all. Same thing with Jay Adams, right? That he was starting this movement, he, he, and, and it really, he had to force this thing. It was, a, it was forcefully launched in the midst of a not-so-amicable um, setting. He wasn't, he wasn't uh, making a whole lot of friends. In fact, he was making a lot of enemies when he, when he launched this book. Um, and so this movement needed to be finessed by those who've come after him. And so Keith, Heath Lambert does a great job talking about, you know, all the strengths of Jay Adams and what we appreciate him and are so indebted to him for. And none of us would be here if it wasn't for him. But there were some things that we, that needed to be, uh, refined and needed to be advanced in the biblical counseling movement. And so this second and, and third generation of men, again, like Powelson and Welch and the, the, the guys that we're reading today, most people aren't reading Jay Adams today. They're reading uh, all these other guys, Stuart Scott, John Street, Brad Bigney, Steve Byers. And so they've been refining, they've been advancing the, the movement, and in Lambert's words, these men, along with Adams, have, quote, spent the last four decades trying to help the church figure out how to have conversations with troubled people in a way that is most faithful to the scriptures and most honoring to Jesus Christ. I hope you know or at least get the sense that we're trying to do the same thing here at this church, that we're, we're trying to figure out how to have conversations with troubled people in a way that is most faithful to the scriptures and most honoring to Jesus Christ. One of the things that Adams didn't want to happen was for his name to be associated with what he was convinced was the, the biblical model for counseling. Again, a very uh, humble, faithful guy that wasn't seeking any kind of fame or, or, or you know, accolades or adulation. He just wanted to be, you know, forgotten, if you will. And so, based on Romans fifteen fourteen, you knew we were going to get back there eventually, Right? Our verse for today, and concerning you, my brethren, I myself also am convinced that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able also to admonish one another. Based on that verse, and based on that one Greek word, admonish, the word for admonish one another, it's the, the Greek word nuthesia or nuthateo. He came up with the name. And so Adam's counseling method is, is referred to as nuthetic counseling. Nuthetic counseling. And again, it's based on that last phrase that you are able also to admonish one another. The NIV, some of you might have a new international version, it says to, you are competent, I'm convinced that you are competent to counsel or instruct one another. That's where he got the title of this book, Competent to Counsel, was from this verse. And that word is, is an important word, that, that word admonish, or again, nuthesia, or nuthateo, it's a combination of two words, it's the word nous which means mind, and tithemi, which means to put into. So combine those things in one word, nuthesia, literally means to put into the mind. And in the, in the, in the uh, linguistic key to the New Testament, which is a helpful little word study book that, that I look at most every week as I study, this is what the author said about this word nuthesia or nuthetic, 
They said, quote, it is an appeal to the mind where opposition is present. In other words, something is opposing you. You're dealing with some trial or some temptation, right? And so you're appealing to the mind. They said this, the person is led away from a false way through warning, instruction, reminding, teaching, and encouraging, and his conduct is to be corrected. This was a favorite word of Paul's. In fact, he was the only one who used it uh, in the New Testament. Um, we find it in a number of his letters. In fact, he actually used it in one of his speeches recorded in the book of Acts, and, and it's translated in a number of different ways to admonish, warn, or instruct. Let's look at a few of these places where it's used. Look at Acts chapter 20. Acts chapter 20, verse 17, Paul was, uh, had invited the, the elders of the church in Ephesus to come and meet him as he was heading towards... Um, Jerusalem, he didn't have time to go all the way to Ephesus, so he said, hey, would you come here and we'll get together and meet, and he said this in verse 17, from Miletus he sent to Ephesus, uh, this is uh, Luke recording this, of course, from Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called to him the elders of the church, and when they came to him, he said to them, here it is, you yourselves know from the first day that I set foot in Asia how, how, how I was with you the whole time serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials which came upon me through the plots of the Jews, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you publicly from house to house. Solemnly testifying to both Jews and Greeks of repentance toward God and faith and our Lord Jesus Christ. So he was nuthetaoing them publicly and from house to house. He was warning them. He was admonishing them. He was instructing them. And then notice verse 28. He says, be on your guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which all the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves, men will arise speaking perverse things to draw the disciples after them. Therefore, be on the alert, remembering that night and day for a period of three years, I did not cease to admonish or nuthateo, each one of you with tears. So this is how Paul summarized his ministry. It was a, it was a nuthetic ministry. And it was not only, didn't, all, didn't only include the, the public preaching of the word, but also the private house-to-house preaching. So that's how I view it in my ministry, is that, that this is the, 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 the preaching is the, the, the public ministry of the word and counseling is the private ministry of the word. And, and in preaching, you, you, you kind of use a shotgun approach. You just kind of shoot it out there and you hope something hits, right? Whereas in counseling, you can use a rifle because you can actually hear what the person is struggling with. Right now, I'm just guessing. Knowing my own heart, knowing your heart, you know, what, what are some of the things that are going on in your life? I'm just shooting it out there and knowing that something's going to hit someone, somewhere, sometime. Whereas in counseling, I get to ask some questions and say, hey, so why did you come today? What are the issues that you're thinking about? And, and get very specific in the, the instruction. And, and so a pastor, that's, that's the pastor's responsibility. A pastor just can't be the the guy who gets up behind the pulpit on, on Sunday mornings, he's also got to be the one who's willing to, 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 to be in the trenches during the week and, and, and sit with people and, and minister to them and weep with them and, and work with them through the, the problems and the issues in their lives. Honestly, this is the easy part. It's the, 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 the private house-to-house kind of stuff, right, that, that really is challenging. I, I can come prepared for this, I can have a manuscript in front of me, but man, you're kind of shooting from the hip and counseling because somebody's going to come in and they're going to tell you what the deal is and you got to be ready and you got to know the word well enough, right, to, uh, to, uh, to know exactly where to go in, in God's word to address that particular problem. I, I personally, uh, 
I don't know about how you are, but when I go to the doctor, if and when I go to the doctor, and I tell him about a problem I'm having, and I describe that problem, I want him to give me an accurate diagnosis. And then I want him to write me uh, the prescription, right, with the, the, the whatever's going to fix it and solve it. And, and I feel that responsibility. If you come and ask me some spiritual question, I, I feel like I owe you an answer. I hope that's your expectation, right? I put that expectation on myself, and if I don't know the answer, I'm going to get back to you. And I want to make sure I don't uh, commit some kind of spiritual malpractice by misdiagnosing your problem and then sending you off down some road or giving you some prescription, not for something medical, but just some prescription that, that isn't what you need to be taking or reading or memorizing. Look at 1 Corinthians 4, 1 Corinthians 4, 14. Again, we're just looking at these verses where Nuthateo or Nuthesia is used. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 14. I do not write these things to shame you, but to admonish you as my beloved children. Again, the role of a pastor is to admonish, to instruct, to warn, to put truth in people's minds how about Colossians 1.28? We already read that previously. Colossians 1.28. We proclaim him admonishing, nuthateo, every man, and teaching every man with all wisdom so that we can present every man completely raised. Again, reminding this is the role of a pastor, preacher, teacher. This is what we're doing. We're, we're nuthaseeing people. How about 3.16? Now watch this. Don't miss this. This is Colossians 3.16. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching, and admonishing, nuthateo, one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Wow, so notice there's a transition here. This is not addressed to pastors. This is addressed to Christians in general that the word of Christ should richly dwell within you. In other words, the word of God should be so in your mind and your heart that you're able to wisely teach and admonish other people with the scriptures. First Thessalonians 5, 12. We see these two concepts come together in this one passage. First Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 12 but we request of you, brethren, that you appreciate those who diligently labor among you and have charge over you in the Lord and give you instruction. Nuthateo. So this is clearly talking about the leaders. This is their role to have charge over you, uh, to give you instruction, and that you esteem them very highly in love because of their work, live in peace with one another. And notice this. We urge you, brethren, admonish Nuthateo, the unruly, encourage the faint heart and help the weak be patient with everyone. So again, it's, it's, it's all of our responsibility. You see that? That is my responsibility to, to be counseling people and, and, and uh, warning them and, 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 and admonishing them and instructing them. It's your responsibility. It's all of our responsibility. We're all in this thing together. And then look at 2 Thessalonians just as we wrap this up. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 Verse 13, but as for you, brethren, do not grow weary of doing good. If anyone does not obey our instruction in this letter, take special note of that person and do not associate with him so that he will be put to shame, yet do not regard him as an enemy, but, here it is, admonish him as a brother. So Paul starts up by using the term to point to pastors and their responsibility then he points to pastors and Christians and says it's all of our responsibility. And he ends by saying, oh, just don't you forget, it's your responsibility to admonish one another. So we can con conclude a couple things here from, from these verses. One is, nuthetic counseling implies a verbal confrontation for the purpose of change. Secondly, it is the duty and responsibility of every pastor and elder. Don't be farming out your people to the psychologist down the street. That's your job, pastor. 
And it's also the job of every believer. And I think if a church is, is functioning the way God intended it to, there's only a handful of cases that will end up before the pastor. Why? Because people are getting counseled all the time by one another. And maybe it's only the extreme cases, right, where there's, there's some, just some extre- a, a unique situation of some sort and, and, uh, or maybe it needs more involvement uh, by more than one person and that's kind of when it, it, things have kind of increased and, and heightened and, and maybe they need to go before one of the pastors and let one of the pastors address it. But don't just, don't just bring somebody along and, and say, hey, pastor, I, 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 there's this person here that has this problem you know, so I wanted to introduce him to you. Well, I appreciate that, but what have you done about it? I mean, I'm more than willing to meet with this individual, but only after you've done everything you can do and said everything you can say and told him everything you know, right? And sometimes I think church members have, are tempted to hide behind the pastor. Well, that's his job. He knows more than I do, so I'll let him deal with it. Well, that's why Paul said, I am confident, I am persuaded, I'm convinced that you are able to to do it. You can do it. And again, Paul originally wrote this to to the believers in the churches in Rome, but it also applies to us. And whether, whether we realize it or not, every one of us is a counselor and is counseling all the time. Everyone is counseling somebody. It's just in, done in, in, in an informal way, so it doesn't feel like an official, formal counseling case. Well, you've got all of you Number one, you're a case. I'm a case. We're all cases. And, uh, and you've got multiple cases around you. Your spouse, your children. In some cases, your parents. Um, your neighbors, your coworkers, your classmates. Listen, when someone calls you and says they found a vaporizer in their teenager's backpack, and they're asking you what they should do about it, the next thing you do is what? Counseling. You are immediately thrust in the role of a counselor. Or how about when your first grader comes home from school, mom, and uh, they tell you that they were made fun of on the playground. What you do next is what? Counseling. You've been thrust in the role of a counselor for your child. Or when your friend confides in you that, that they're bored in their marriage and are being tempted to end it. What you do next is what? Counseling. And these are the kinds of things that are happening all the time uh, in our lives and, and in the life of a, of a church. And so the, the issue is you, you are already counseling those around you. The, the issue is whether... It's biblical counseling. Or is it your own thoughts and ideas and your own experiences? Can I give you a, a, just a, a simple definition of biblical counseling? And, and just maybe to round it out and so it's not just confronting someone. I think we could say it this way. Biblical counseling is lovingly and patiently confronting, admonishing, and instructing people with God's word in humble dependence on the power of God's spirit in order to help them change the way they're thinking and living so they're more like God's son, all for God's glory. So you've got God's word, you've got God's spirit, and you've got God's son, and ultimately, you've got God's glory. And those are, I think, the key keys or key essentials or pieces 
of biblical counseling. God's word, God's spirit, God's son, and God's glory. Jay Adams, like the Apostle Paul, was convinced that every Christian was competent to counsel. Again, going back to our text, and concerning you, my brethren. So he's talking to all believers here, us included. He said, I'm convinced that you yourselves are, number one, full of goodness, which may sound strange if you've been with us through our study of Romans, for Paul to say this in light of what he already wrote to them back in chapter three about how there is no one, what? Good. Not even one, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You're saying now that you're saying there's, you're full of goodness? Well, remember, a lot's happened since Romans chapter three. We, we've learned about the gospel and it's transforming work in our lives. And so in our flesh, there's nothing good in us. But because of the transforming work of the gospel and the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives now, we can be filled with goodness. What is one of the fruits of the Spirit? Love, joy, peace, faithfulness, goodness. So Paul was just saying, listen, because you've been transformed by the gospel, now you have a different set of priorities. You have moral character. You hate what's evil and you love righteousness. And, and most of all, you, you care about others. And you care enough about others to get involved in their mess. You're full of goodness. The gospel has turned you into a, a good group of folks who care about one another. So you're full of goodness. But also, secondly, he says you're filled with all knowledge. And God, Paul wasn't saying that they, they, they knew everything because if that was true, he would have never sent them the most detailed explanation of the gospel ever penned. These churches had been in existence for at least a decade or so by now. They'd been well taught and so Paul was commending them for being doctrinally sound. Which, along with the fact that they were filled with goodness... They were full of goodness and full of knowledge or filled with knowledge. That meant they were qualified. They were equipped to confront and correct one another and help each other grow in godliness and fruitfulness. They needed no specialized training. They didn't need to send their people out to the world. To me, that's the irony of, of this is that you're sending believers to learn how to live life that's pleasing to God by unbelievers. Does that make any sense? In other words, hey, you're equipped, man. You, you can do it in-house. In the church. In other words, you're biblically informed so that you can be spiritually involved in the lives of one another. The question is, that, is that true of you? Is that true of you? Do you care enough and are you competent enough to counsel other people? And don't forget, this is not just for those that God has called to serve in the counseling ministry. Because the counseling ministry or counseling is not just one of a number of ministries in the life of this church. It is the ministry of this church. You get that? Because what we're talking about is not counseling per se. We're just talking about discipleship. That's really what all the counseling is. It's discipleship. And, and, and so therefore, it's not a ministry in which only a select group of volunteers who are gifted at, at counseling... Now, everyone is involved in counseling and discipling one another. Every one of us is responsible to encourage and, 
and to strengthen other believers with God's word and we're divinely equipped to do so. Galatians 6.1 says, brethren, those who are spiritual, restore such a one. Brethren, if you see someone overtaken in a fall, those who are spiritual, restore such a one in the spirit of gentleness, watching yourself, lest you too be tempted, bear one another's burdens, right? There's another command calling all of us into the, the work of restoration. Matthew 18 would be another verse. If you see your brother sin, go to him and show him his sin, and the goal is to win him, right? And you're not in this alone. If, if you need, get some other people involved in the process. Hebrews chapter 3 talks about how we need to be encouraging one another so our hearts are not hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Uh, we are to consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. And then maybe James would be one last verse, James 5.19, my brother, and again, all of us, if any of you strays from the truth and one turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. I mean, this is, this is all of us. So, questions by way of application. What are you doing right now to train and equip yourself to more effectively use the word of God to counsel and disciple other people? Do you know how to apply God's solutions to the problems that you face in your life? Are you working these things out in your own life? Do you know where to go in Scripture to deal with marriage conflict or communication problems or parenting problems or guilt or depression or pride or anger or fear or worry or some kind of sexual sin or gluttony. And maybe you don't feel like you're an expert in these areas. Well, are you familiar with the, the, the many helpful biblical resources that practically address these common issues that people face? People face. I mean, we've got a resource center, and that's exactly what it is. It's a resource center for you. It's, it's really my pharmacy. I mean, that's how I view it, a physical pharmacy, or excuse me, a spiritual pharmacy. So if somebody comes and says, hey, pastor, I'm, I'm working through this issue. I really want to th- learn about this, or I need to grow in this area, and I, and I pull out my pad, hypothetically speaking, and I write a prescription, Give it to them and say, hey, go down there and buy Trusting God by Jerry Bridges. Hey, go down there and, you know, buy, you know, I'm blanking on all the books I've told people to buy down there. But it's kind of like, hey, you know, you go to see the doctor and gives the prescription. Next thing, your next trip, you go from the doctor straight to the pharmacist, right? So you go from the conversation you're having here between the chairs after church straight to the resource center. But you got to know What's in there? So you can refer people to get this book or get this little book. Go, I mean, I would encourage you to take some time, some Sunday, Wednesday night, you're here. Just go in there and just peruse. Not, don't buy anything. Just go in there and look around. Look at different titles and, and, and little sections. We have counseling sections, little, work, little books, little, little quick little books. And, and uh, it, you'll be like, hey, I, I just had this conversation with a guy and I need to, he needs to know about this book. One of the resources that you might want to buy is uh, written by a a good friend of mine, Joel James. It's called Counsel with Confidence, a quick reference guide for biblical counselors and disciplers. And and this just is, uh, man, puts the cookies down on the the bottom shelf easy. Like you say, oh man, this guy came to me and he's dealing with, you know, uh, homosexuality. That's the one that came to my mind or came came up here. Or financial issues or self-esteem or... uh, submission or restoring a marriage or communication. It's just like a little short few pages that, that defines the problem and shoots you to the passages of Scripture that address that problem. So it's kind of a one-stop shop, a little manual, kind of keep in your back pocket, pull it out, right? A handy reference guide. I'd encourage everyone to have a copy of this. We have them in the Resource Center. Um, saw them this week when I was in there perusing uh, the Resource Center to see what we had. Do you understand the sanctification process? 
how you progressively change and grow as a Christian and deal with the sinful idols in your own heart. You can't come alongside somebody else and help them deal with the idols of their heart if you don't know how to deal with the idols in your own heart. See, the point is all of us are in the middle of our own sanctification, right? As, as um, Paul Tripp said so wonderfully in, in his uh, title of, that he wrote, this is a great book on counseling, by the way. Uh, if you were to say, hey, Ken, if I was gonna read one book on counseling, what should I read? I actually wouldn't tell you to read Combat to the Council. I'd tell you to read Instruments in the Dreamer's Hands. And the subtitle is People in Need of Change Helping People in Need of Change. It just kind of puts everything in perspective. You don't show up and say, yep, I've arrived in my spiritual life. How can I help? You're like, hey, let me tell you how I'm struggling. Let me tell you how I'm trying to work that out in my own life. And you know that argument you just described you had? We, in fact, my wife and I just had the same thing last night. And this is how we're working through it. Let me just say this as I close. Our counseling ministry is a gateway into our church for unbelievers or believers who are not being well shepherded in their church. So we got believers who aren't going to church and you've got believers who are not being well shepherded in their churches. We, I don't know if you knew that. We, we have a counseling ministry. We do have an official counseling ministry. All of us are supposed to be doing this informally, but we need more of you to do it formally. In other words, this is one of the most effective ways to, to reach out to people in our community who desperately need help and hope in dealing with the problems they're facing in their lives. And guess what? We have a waiting list right now. We try to never put anybody in our church on a waiting list. Um, you come first. But when it's dealing with people in the community, whether they're unbelievers or going to another church and they, they don't have a counseling ministry or for whatever reason they, they reached out to us, you know, they're the ones that could put on the waiting list. But um, we need help. We need support. We need backup. And, and we'll train you. Uh, we'll help you if you are interested in kind of taking this thing to the next level and even curious about getting certified as a biblical counselor. I mean, that would be a life-changing uh, process for you to do that. And so we need some help. And uh, want to appeal to you to do that. You can talk to Chris Starr. Chris, Chris is in, in charge of our counseling ministry. He oversees all of that. Uh, he would love to have conversations with, with tons of you when he gets back uh, next week. Just uh, storm his office. Say, hey, Chris, I want to be part of the counseling team. What do I got to do? Train me. Equip me. Sign me up, coach. Put me in. He would be blessed. And I would just say this, just to encourage you all, because you may some of you may feel like, whoa, no way, that's not me. That's way too intimidating. Listen, even though I've had extensive biblical counseling training, the more I read my Bible and read books and articles about counseling, and the more I counsel others, and the more I deal with my own heart struggles, the more inadequate I feel to counsel people. Why? Because I realize how much I've yet to learn and how far I've got to go still in my own personal sanctification. I was counseling somebody recently, and I was having an out-of-body experience and listening to myself nuthateo them, instruct them, admonish them, warn them regarding their life and what the scriptures had to say to them and their situation and I'm sitting there listening to myself communicate these things and I'm thinking, I'm a hypocrite. I need to do these very same things in this particular issue in my life. And so that's one of the reasons why I love counseling because it's a window into my own soul and it provides tremendous accountability for my own walk with the Lord and my own marriage and my own parenting and my own battle against sinful habits. 
There's nothing that has stimulated my own growth as a Christian, as a husband, as a parent more than sitting across from fellow believers and again, being stirred up by way of reminder as I have the privilege of sharing the, the relevant practical passages in God's word that address where the rubber meets the road when it comes to living the Christian life and, and, and I get to not just the joy and the privilege of sharing those, I get the blessing of having to hear those things again so I don't forget because I tend to forget, as we all do. So I would just commend counseling and discipling. The more you do it, uh, the more it'll help you in your own walk with the Lord. Let me pray. God, this is kind of an odd message, kind of different than what we're used to, but I trust that it was... um, directed by you and will be used by you to accomplish your purposes in, in the life of this church and the, the heart of uh, these folks. And I pray that you would make us a counseling church filled with Christ-centered biblical counselors and disciplers who have complete confidence in, in your word and total dependence on your spirit to provide others help and hope who are struggling with problems in their lives Lord, I can say with Paul that I'm convinced that this group of people that is sitting in front of me is full of goodness and filled with knowledge and are able to counsel one another and encourage one another and admonish one another. And so I pray you'd grant them the grace to be faithful to do that for your glory, for their good, and for the good of those that they counsel and disciple. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.